This is episode number one, my very first podcast episode, yay, with Jonathan Fields. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, and I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe to uncover the habits, mindsets, tools, and rituals that they have used to become world-class so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Jonathan Fields is a New York City dad, husband, entrepreneur, and award-winning author. He founded the mission-driven media and education venture, Good Life Project, where he and his team lead a global community in the quest to live more meaningful, connected, and vital lives. His new book, How to Live a Good Life, Soulful Stories, Surprising Science, and Practical Wisdom, offers a gateway to a life of meaning, connection, and vitality. Now, Jonathan and I first met through our mutual friend Jason from Mind Body Green. And I wanted to interview him today because he is so authentic and really walks his talk. He exudes love and presence and is the embodiment of his message. Plus, he is so full of knowledge and wisdom. And in this interview, we chat about the three good life buckets, what they are, why they are so important, and how you can fill them up every single day. We also discuss the most influential person for him growing up, and it wasn't his parents, which was really surprising. The power of being an introvert and how you can embrace it, the life-changing lesson he got from his gymnastics coach, and the biggest business failure to date, plus so much more. Now, you can get all of the information in the show notes at melissaambrosini.com forward slash one. But without further ado, I am so excited for you guys to hear this awesome interview with the one, the only Jonathan Fields. Welcome, Jonathan. I am so grateful to have you here with us today. Well, I'm so grateful to be hanging out with you. So let's go really juicy and deep right up. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Today I had three scrambled eggs, farm eggs, um, some organic spinach sautéed in avocado oil and some plantain chips. Seriously? Delicious. Yep. You can cook breakfast for me any day. (laughs) (laughs) It's just adding to the reasons that I want to come over to uh, Sydney. I'm like, okay, I have so many friends and now breakfast for everybody. Yeah, exactly. So you're calling in from New York City. I am indeed, yeah. I have been a massive fan of your work and now you have this beautiful book out, which I love. It's uh, How to Live a Good Life. And you have built a brand, a business, you've launched launched products, you have created podcasts all around living a good life. So I want to ask you, what's your definition of living a good life? What does that mean for you? Yeah. um, And it's something that I think about every day because it's, I'm that rare person that's actually built a career out of asking myself that question on a daily basis and, and asking other people around the world that very same question. And so it evolves for me, but what I've come down to is, you know, I look at life as essentially, we each have three buckets. One bucket is vitality, and that's about optimizing our state of mind and body. One bucket is our connection bucket, and that's about our relationships, cultivating deep, meaningful relationships. And that third bucket is contribution. It's how we contribute to the world, how we bring our gifts to the world. So for me, a good life is um, doing a little something every day to try and ensure that those buckets, all three of them, stay as full as they can. So devoting time and energy to love and belonging and connection with source and, you know, devoting time to really taking care of my state of mind and, and my body, my, you know, the, the physical animal that we live in and really thinking about the way that I invest myself in the world. You know, what am I creating? Is it meaningful? Is it aligned with the essence of who I am? Do I feel like I'm leveraging my strengths fully? So for me, it's really about, it's about, um, 
filling those three buckets and doing a little something every day to to try and keep them as topped off as they can be. I love that. As I was reading your book, we have a lot of um, similar belief systems and it just made me fall even more in love with you and your <laughs> message because <laughs> the whole time I was like, yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, it's like almost like high-fiving you the whole way through your book. Awesome. But I talk a lot about um, filling yourself up because we cannot truly give if we're not overflowing. You know, if we're only half empty and like you say, if if your buckets are, you know, a quarter full or half full, there's going to feel like an emptiness within us. So I know throughout the book, you give lots of examples of how to fill up your buckets, but if for someone who's walking around with, you know, a quarter full or half full, like how does that reflect out into their everyday life? Like how are their choices going to be different as opposed to if someone, for someone who was overflowing? Yeah. And you know, it's a great question. And, um, the, the answer is they're going to be different in every way imaginable. Um, you know, we, and I, I so agree with your idea of we, we can only give what we have. Um, and, and if we're running low, then not only do we have less to give, we have less to survive, less to draw on ourselves to flourish. So, you know, if your vitality bucket is running low, um, then that means basically your state of mind is probably trending towards um, not just being glum, but potentially anxious, depressed, out of sorts, agitated, angry, frustrated. And, you know, you get triggered so much faster than the average person would, or than somebody whose buckets are really full. And you don't experience the same highs as other people. You don't experience joy. Um, when bad things happen, you hold on to them and suffer in them and you grasp. And then when good things happen, you don't want to let them go and you grasp fiercely. And that causes other pain and very often pushes those good things or relationships away. You know, same thing with your body. If you're if your physical body is is in pain, is ill, is hurting, then what we know is that the body and the mind are this seamless feedback mechanism. You know, the notion of body and mind being separate is just a complete fallacy. So if your body is taking a hit, then it's going to not only cause all sorts of physical limitations in how you can experience joy, how you can experience movement, you know, which I know is a huge thing for you. And, um, and how you can go and have adventure in life. It's also, it's going to trickle up into your state of mind. And it's very likely if you feel physical pain or physical discomfort, or you're, you're really, um, tight or tired physically, that same thing is going to happen in your state of mind. And so it limits pretty much you know, everything that we can do on so many levels. And, and we're just talking about one bucket there. You know, that's just the vitality bucket. Then you extend that out into your relationships and into your, the way you contribute to the world. And it's pretty dramatic. Um, you know, if you're operating at 25% full in each one of your three buckets, you are probably not enjoying much of your life. Um, and the sad thing is I think a lot of people don't actually realize that. They just kind of think, well, this is life. This is what it's meant to be. This is being a grown up. You know, you give up so much joy. You give up connections. You give up relationships. You give up movement. You give up all this stuff in the name of just being a responsible grown up. And, and in fact, it's, it's just not the truth. Mm, so true. You know, these are the years where we can experience so much joy and play and adventure and fun. And it doesn't have to be, we don't have to subscribe to that way of living. I love that. It's really important. So tell us about your childhood. Like what was it like growing up for you? And was there really, were there some really influential people that shaped you or inspired you? Because, you know, what you do now is so inspirational and you have achieved so much. And how, how did your childhood pan out for you? What was it like? <laughs> uh, that's a big question. Um, I actually I had a great childhood. I have, you know, I, and what's interesting, I've met so many people now through the years that have moved out of their childhood um, with some really major struggles and some really major wounds and 
and a lot of really tough things to process. And I probably didn't realize until a bit later in my life that I had a pretty blessed childhood. Um, you know, there were, there were certainly moments that were challenging. You know, I was, my folks split up when I was in high school, as did something like half of, you know, parents of kids who were my generation. So that didn't make me all that unusual. And it was sort of the normal pains of going through that. Um, I was, a, I was probably a bit of a different kid though. I was a kid. So in sixth grade, my nickname was Freaky Fields. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a, you know, but as, as I moved into middle school and the high school, I had this big kind of like Afro of curly hair. And, um, and freaky in uh, what sense? Like, were you academically really freaky or was it musically? No, I, I just kind of marched to the, you know, my own drumbeat. Um, I, I grew up in a household where my dad was an academic and my mom was kind of a hippie potter um, and a craftsperson and an artisan. So I had this weird blend of a bit of bohemian and a bit of intellectual. And, um, and neither of them were what I would call sort of mainstream. You know, they kind of really lived in these two I think academic, academic culture is, is a bit of an oddball culture and sort of the artisan culture is a bit of a fringe culture. So, you know, there was, I didn't have these models of, oh, you're sort of mainstream doctor, lawyer, banker type of thing. And this is how we operate. Um, so when I was a kid, I think that was, um, it was probably good because I saw them being different and I saw them still being okay. And, um, and I, you know, I, I walked around and I kind of, I was who I was. I was a little bit artist. I was a little bit entrepreneur and, um, and I was not all that fond of rules and constraints. <laughs> um, and, uh, so I, and I, and I also, I'm an introvert, so I enjoyed a fair amount of time in solitude. You know, I'm not, I was never the big life of the party person. And, um, I probably, because I was, I didn't hide that all that much, you know, um, I probably had to find ways to get comfortable with it at a younger age. And, and I think, you know, looking, looking back and sort of seeing where I've ended up now, it's kind of funny because my sense is that I'm curious what your thought of this is also my, my sense is that the kids who were a little different, who were a little dorky or a little weird or a little geeky or sort of like the dark artists or the, you know, the people who are kind of pushing the edge a little bit, when you look later in life, very often they're the ones who are doing really interesting things, who are making the big changes, who are leading and who are, um, who are out there sort of um, really living interesting, good, lit up lives. Um, I'm with, with the people that, with you and with you, who you've grown up with, do you, do you, have you experienced that also? Yeah, absolutely. I always felt like the odd one out. You know, I didn't love what the kids at school loved. You know, they they loved netball and, you know, it was very traditional and I wanted to dance and art and sing and I was super creative. Like I really loved playing and making up stories and putting on shows for my, my neighborhood. And I loved performing and I loved expressing myself through art and music and dance and things like that. And I, I, it wasn't celebrated in my school or in my community. It was kind of like, oh, that's not a real thing. That's not, you can't make a living out of being a performer. And so it was really suppressed. And I kind of pushed it to the side and was like, okay, I've got to be academically inclined. And I, I mean, I loved study and I loved learning, but I so desperately just wanted to be on the stage. And I suppressed it for many years until, you know, it was, I could no longer suppress it. And I really let that shine out. You know, when I finished school, I went on and I became a professional performer. I danced at the Moulin Rouge in Paris and I I did acting and TV presenting. And I'm so grateful that I got to experience that. And still to this day, you know, I don't want to do that anymore in my life, but I noticed that if I don't get my butt to a dance class or if I don't move my body in yoga or something or even just sing in the car or dance with my my little boy around the living room, I'm not 
my vitality bucket isn't as mm. full, you know? So yeah. I've got to make sure that I really, I regularly uh, express myself in that way so that, um, you know, I'm letting that part of myself out. So yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's it's really interesting to see. And I want to go back and just chat about something that you mentioned about being an introvert because my husband and I have a 10-year-old stepson whom I love and adore, and they're very, very introverted. Me, I'm not introvert. I'm completely extroverted. I am very bubbly. I'm very outgoing. I could talk and make friends with anyone on the street where my husband and little boy are quite introverted. And we went to um, his school parent-teacher interview a few weeks back and the teacher sat there and said, you know, he needs to contribute more in class. He's really quiet. He's too quiet. He's too quiet. He he sticks to himself. And we kind of went away and we we were thinking about this and we were like, you know, why are they why are they trying to, you know, mold him into something that he's not? And my husband, you know, went back and spoke to the teacher and and just said, you know, I'm introverted and, and we, you know, Leo may be introverted as well. And why can't we just celebrate and embrace that and, you know, not force him into a a different kind of mold. So, um, you know, I'm curious to know, did people try and shape you along your journey and, and say, you've got to be more outgoing or you've got to be more a certain way? Did that happen to you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I thought about this a lot over the years, um, especially as, as I've I've become a bit of a public person, and um, I don't have a need to be public. I don't have, you know, I'm not wired the same way as you do. I don't. I love being on stage speaking, um, but I also love being off stage as soon as I'm done. <laughs> and you know, I don't love working a big room. I love smaller, intimate. You know, a friend over for dinner or a quiet conversation, and. Um, and there, I never, I don't remember ever sort of feeling shunned or being told I need to change or this isn't right. But what I have come to learn more recently is um, Susan Cain is a friend of mine who wrote the book Quiet, which kind of blew my mind when I read the book because I love that book. You know, yeah, so powerful. And and for those who haven't read it, it's a book that basically it's this really stunning deep dive into sort of. Um, introverts in the world and about a third of, of people are and how sort of popular culture has, has shamed that social wiring and said, there's something wrong with it. And it's something that needs to be changed. You know, everything from it's, it's rude to you're stupid. Um, and then the example you gave where when you have a classroom setting and a healthy dose of the grade is based on participation, it automatically punishes kids who are just sort of wired to be quieter or more sensitive, you know, even though they may really want to do their best and they may be super intelligent and creative and fantastic contributors in other ways and great students. And Susan, actually, one of one of her missions is actually really to work with education and to work with teachers and with parents and with kids to really help shine a light on the fact that um, maybe policies like that in class are doing more harm than good. And they're taking kids who have so much to contribute and they're basically saying there's something wrong with you that needs to be fixed. And, um, rather than saying exactly, you know, what you were saying, no, this, this is, this is who this kid is and it's beautiful. And there's so much, there's some really powerful and profound benefits to, you know, introverts tend to be um, more mindful. They tend to notice more things. They tend to seek solitude more. And in that solitude, some fantastic ideas and observations and innovations emerge in a way that um, doesn't necessarily happen with a more extroverted wiring. So, you know, the big, the big awakening for me was that, in fact, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but definitely just culturally coming up, there were definitely moments where I would feel, even though nobody said it to me, you just kind of know that the rules of the game are you got to step up and step step out if you want to get ahead. That's just the way it is. Um, it's interesting. I had a, I had an opportunity a couple of years back to sit down and um, film an interview with Eve Branson, who's Richard Branson's mom, who's a total firecracker and <laughs> really funny, really bright. 
And she shared that when Richard was actually a small child, he was super shy, very introverted. And in her mind, that, that was socially not acceptable. It was rude. You know, your job was to make other people feel comfortable when you're in a room. So he had to, you know, in her mind, he, he had to learn how to be more social. So in order to try and force him to uh, go up to strangers and talk to them and have conversations, and this was in a very different time, mind you, um, they took him when he was a really little kid. I want to say like six or something like that. They drove him a few miles out from home and just dropped him and left. They drove away. Oh my gosh. And the, uh, yeah. The, the idea was that, you know, he would have to talk to people and this was a small town. So, you know, like, but that he would have to talk to people to find his way back. So night comes and there's no Richard. They haven't heard, you know, a word <laughs> from him. And she starts to get really upset. She's like, oh my gosh, what kind of a parent am I? What have we done? They're getting the car. They're driving all over the neighborhood. They can't find him. They finally go and, and stop at a neighbor's house. And they come in and there's Richard, you know, like jovially having a dinner with the neighbors. <laughs> and, oh my gosh. You know, so it's sort of like the, uh, but it was really funny because there, there's definitely, there's a certain ethos, especially in different cultures that says that this is something that's broken that has to be changed. But I do think that that's starting to change. I think um, you don't always see it in academia or like in the classroom but I do think that there's been a lot more awakening to the fact that actually, yeah, there's a certain grace in this social wiring, which is not lesser than in any way, shape or form than any other orientation. Mm, couldn't agree more. And so was there anyone growing up for you that was really influential in, uh, you know, you've mentioned your parents. Was there anyone else or was there one parent that was more influential to you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, I thought about this a bit recently. I'm not sure why. Um, maybe it was a process of writing the book. Maybe it's just um, I'm, I'm reaching a point in my life where I'm getting a little more reflective. Um, and other than just sort of immediate family, there I was trying to think, was there somebody who really stuck out and taught me a lesson? And it's interesting. One of the characters who comes to mind is not somebody who I actually had a particularly good relationship with. Um, in fact, it was a really tense relationship with. And that was um, that was my gymnastics coach. So I actually I trained as a competitive gymnast um, through high school, and I spent a lot of time year-round. And we had, when I was on our team for the four years um, that I competed in high school, we actually never lost a meet. We were always top-ranked. And... I got into fights with my coach on a fairly regular basis. And the reason was on the off season, I would train with my own, with a different coach, with my private coach. And we, we'd be learning all these really cool moves and flying around and doing fancy stuff. And then I would come back to my regular coach during the season and I would start to do this stuff in the gym. And he pulled me off the bars. He's like, no, you can't do that. He said, train the basics, master the basics, master the basics. And I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to go and do the fancy stuff. I wanted to do the sexy stuff, the high flying stuff. And I never, so I always got like baseline proficient in the essentials, in the elements. Um, but I never worked them to a point where they were just meticulous and they were just completely dialed in. And cause I just wanted to go do the fun stuff. And it took me years to realize that, you know, the lesson that he was trying to instill is that this is the foundation for everything and that without this, you will always be capped in everything that you do. And you can go do the fancy stuff. You can, you know, do the window dressing. And, um, but if you don't have the foundation absolutely dialed in, then you're building all of that on top of something which will be forever weak. And I didn't want to hear that when I was in high school. Because it meant that I couldn't, you know, go and do the stuff that was really fun. Um, but he kept pulling me back and kept pulling me back and kept pulling me back and forcing me to do it. And it sunk in eventually. I fought it. Um, but I think, you know, it's probably emerged later in life in a willingness to commit to really getting the essentials down. So even as a writer... Um, you know, I'm obsessed with the craft of language. I love being able to go deep into nuance and turning phrases. Um, and at the same time, I'm a former lawyer in a pretty past life at this point. And when I was a lawyer, I was the managing editor of Law Review, which means that I, I edited this scholarly journal. 
And it was my job to know the Chicago Manual of Style and Strunk and White, like the back of my hand. So I spent, you know, like countless hundreds, if not thousands of hours going deep into mastering the rules of grammar and style. And while I really didn't enjoy doing it, um, I think that that has set me up so that now when I write, I know when I'm breaking those rules and I know why I'm breaking them. And, I, and my sense is that makes me a better writer. It's like when I was a gymnast, when I choose to then throw the high flying moves, like now I have the foundation underneath me as a writer. And, and my sense is that that will allow me over the long term to become a much better writer. So so it's interesting that one of the people that I, I reflect on sometimes as actually teaching me that lesson I had a very strained relationship with, but um, in hindsight, you know, he taught me an important lesson. I always say it's often the things, the little things that are so easy not to do, um, uh, that, that are easy to do, that are also easy not to do. You know, they're the mm. things, they're the foundation things, you know. It's even something like like you talk about in your book, you know, a lot of the concepts are um, – easy for people to do gratitude and nourishing your body and movement and meditation. Like it's not rocket science, but it's these simple things that are so easy to do that are also easy not to do. Mm, um, so true. And it's, it's, you know, I talk about that inner critic, that inner mean girl, that fear-based or whatever you want to call it, uh, your ego, whatever. Um, is usually the thing that stops you from doing those things. Uh, and um, it, it's, it's interesting that fear is our biggest, our biggest thing that'll stop us. And um, I just wanted to go back and also say, um, you know, you talk about wisdom coming from failing. And I also say nothing is a failure if you learn a lesson from it. Mm -hmm. If there if there is a lesson or a nugget of wisdom that you get out of the situation, then there's that then you haven't failed. Uh, but I'm interested and curious to know what's been your biggest failure in inverted commas uh to date. Oh man, I've lived enough of life so that I've had a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, probably depends on in what domain you're asking also, you know, professional, relationship, physical, um, I've had them all. <laughs> um, so any particular, uh, preference on where, uh, where to focus? Let's start with something to do with your business because I have a, you know, a lot of my tribe sure. are, um, entrepreneurs and following their dreams and doing what they love. So, you know, it's very easy to kind of look at you and go, wow, you have accomplished so much in your life and you are a prolific writer and you're an amazing teacher and you have, you know, gone deep with yoga, owned your own yoga spaces and studios and run retreats and you've been a lawyer and you're a dad and you're, you have achieved so much. And it's very easy for people to sit back and go, oh, well, it's easy for him. He's, he's, he's got it all together. But <laughs> this is why I want to ask this question about failure. Like, you know, in your business, you know, recently, you know, what's something that, um, could have been deemed a failure, but maybe you did get the nugget of wisdom out of it, or maybe you didn't. Yeah. Um, man, there've been a lot of things. I'm, I'm a huge fan of experimenting. Um, so when I look at something in an odd way, the number one question when I'm doing something new is even though, you know, deep down I would love it to succeed. You know, I'd love it to just knock something out of the park on the first try. The, the truth is that rarely ever happens. And most people look at, you know, successes in business and life and they're like, wow, that person is charmed or they just figured it out. What they don't realize is they've probably tried this, you know, between 10 and 100 times before. And it hasn't, you know, it's gone, gone anywhere from just flat out crashing to just kind of doing eh. And then that person, instead of walking away and saying, this isn't for me or I'm not good at it, they're like, huh, well, how fascinating. You know, that was interesting. How can I take what I've learned and then try something again and do it a little bit differently um, and tweak it a little bit differently? Um, I think for, for me... I don't know if it, I would really call this a failure, but the evolution of the way that we've been producing media for Good Life Project has been interesting, which is that we 
when we started out, we were we were producing video and we traveled with a full like a three camera crew and we we're putting a ton of money and energy and time and resources into it, and we were building a following. Um, but something was bothering me about it, and and I was enjoying doing it, and um, and there were a couple of things that I was realizing. You know, I went into it thinking, okay, we're going to produce a fantastic show, we're going to raise the bar for production values on on for interview shows on the web, and. And I think we were doing that. And, I, and and to me, I was saying to myself, you know, like one of the, the, the things that I was testing is, will I love this? Will I really enjoy it? Can we create something that's truly a value? Can we create something that's beautiful? And will I really love it? And I assume the answer to all those was going to be yes. And what I learned was that it, it actually wasn't yes on a couple levels. Um, one was that, you know, we were able to produce something that was truly valuable and that I'm really proud of. And our archive of shows was so interesting is we actually, we haven't produced new video in two years now, I think over two years and our views and um, rate of subscriber increases um, on YouTube has remained nearly identical, even though we haven't, we haven't offered anything new in two years showing that you know, the quality of what we created was so evergreen and so valuable that it keeps people coming back and it keeps growing even with us out not adding to it anymore. But what I realized, the big thing that I realized that was a big wrong guess for me was that I would keep liking it the way that we were doing it. What I realized was a couple of things, which is that, um, number one, I didn't have any real need to be on video. Um, mm. and, and so for me, you know, it was sort of... Um, it wasn't a big high to do that. And for us to actually afford to film that way, we had to very often shoot four or five people in a day back to back. So the next person would be kind of waiting in the wings for for us to film the next episode. And what I realized is that when you're filming stuff like that, there are two conversations that happen. There's a conversation that happens on camera. And then there's a conversation that's building up that nobody, neither side is going to actually share when the camera's rolling, but you really want to talk about. And a lot of times that's actually the much more vulnerable, the much richer and the much deeper conversation. And what I found out is in the early days when we weren't shooting as intensively, um, that would happen as soon as we stopped filming and somebody would hang out for an hour and we'd just go deep into this awesome second conversation. And we, when we really ramped up production, we lost that. The next person would just leave. And the thing that I loved most about it um, was gone. And what I realized was I really didn't love doing this anymore. So um, that was a failed assumption. And the other thing was that we assumed that everybody would really love the video. And what, what we realized was that our average viewer was um, somebody who was in their middle years of life, who was very busy with a lot of responsibilities. And that person was not sitting in front of a screen and actually watching the show for an hour. They were all listening to it. And when I went back and reviewed so many of the emails that we got saying, I love this, it's so great. You know, I was watching it while I was cooking or I was watching it while I was doing this. What people were saying is they were just listening to it. And so that was, you know, so I look at that and I'm like, okay, so we're, we're going to shut down video. And when I made that decision, a bunch of my friends were like, but it's succeeding. You know, you're doing what you came to do. Like, why would you do that? And I said, you know, we're succeeding in one of the things, but we're failing in, you know, from the outside looking in, it's successful. From the inside looking out, meaning, is it nourishing me as an individual, as a human being? Is it giving me what I need to get out of it? Um, and the answer was increasingly no. So I look at, I look at two things. Most people look at what they call product maker fit or product market fit, which is, are you creating a product or a solution which is satisfying a need in the market? I look at that. It's important. And I add to that this other thing that I call product maker fit, which is, is the thing that you're creating also satisfying the needs? Is it nourishing the maker, the creator of that thing? Because if it's not, even if it's outwardly successful, eventually it's going to grate on you so much, you're either going to shut it down, sell it, or walk away. And for me, I didn't want to shut it down. I didn't want to sell it. So what we did was I said, okay, what have I learned from this, right? It's like you're a question. Okay, how can I, what have I learned from what's just happened here? And how can I repurpose and move forward in a way where we continue to serve our audience, but in a way that works for them and works for me? And that's when we really started to transition to producing audio. And what I found was that it worked so much better for me. 
I, we have our own studio, so people can just show up casually. We don't have to stack up four or five people to justify the cost of an entire crew, you know, and I can just spend time with somebody and spend time with them after. And the audio format, actually, I found, I'm curious what you think about this too. I found audio to be far more intimate than video. So the conversation just goes deeper, faster, um, and and it's more enjoyable. So, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if that would be considered sort of a failure in the classic sense, but in terms of testing product maker fit, it, w- it was a pretty big no. Um, and I thought it would be yes coming into it. And then, you know, then, then we basically we switched gears and said, okay, how can we continue to serve our community, but in a way that actually works really well for me and for them? Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for saying that. Like, because first of all, I have been following your work for years now and I wondered why you stopped video. And I was like, oh, I liked those videos. And I thought, I wonder why he stopped doing that. And then I thought, oh, maybe he's going to keep doing them or maybe he's taking a break. Um, So thank you out of my own personal curiosity Mm -hmm. for answering that question. But you're exactly right. I... For a couple of months leading up to launching my podcast, which I've just this my podcast is is a baby and um, still in infancy stages, and I have wanted to do it. and And my husband, you know, he's he works in my business, and he said, you know, baby, video, video, you know, let's record it, let's record it as well. And it wasn't a hell yeah for me. It made, Mm. when I tuned in with my body, it wasn't lighting me up. And I feel exactly the same way as you. I I love intimate one-on-one conversations. When I interview people in person, you know, there is that, oh, is my hair okay? You know, is mm-hmm. do I have any <laughs> do I have anything in my teeth? And they're just little human quirks that we all have and and that's fine, but why I started my podcast is because I want to go really deep. I want to have beautiful, soulful conversations with epic people that I love and that inspire me. And every single person that I interview is is someone that I love and someone that has been really influential in my own journey. So um, I can totally relate and I agree. I, you know, as soon as we'd say cut on the recording when I had done interviews, video interviews um, in the past, the juice then started to roll. So, um, Mm. yeah, I can absolutely relate to everything that you've said. And I'm so glad that you said yes to yourself and really followed, uh, what felt true for you. So that's beautiful. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit now. And I have another question that I'd really like to ask you is, what is something that you're working on within yourself or something that you would like to improve within yourself right now? Do you have anything that, you know, you would like to improve on or that you're working on within yourself? Maybe that you wouldn't want anyone to know. <laughs> Break, breaking story here with you. Yeah. Um, man, I feel like I'm... I treat myself as just, just living experiment. So I'm constantly working on everything. Um, yeah. What, what would be an interesting share? Um, I think there's an interesting transition happening to me with movement right now. So, you know, as I mentioned, I was very physical and very athletic as a kid and focusing more on gymnastics and, and then, um, the middle years of my life, um, rock climbing, mountain biking were sort of things that were really attractive to me a little bit later, moving into the world of yoga and fitness and, and spent seven years teaching and practicing vinyasa yoga, which is like a very physical, um, pretty aggressive, um, style of, of asana practice. And, and moving into this season of my life, it's not working for me anymore. Um, Interesting. It's not working for my, yeah, it, it's not, it's just not settling into my body the right way. It's not, it's more agitating. And so I'm sort of in this process now. And the other thing is that I don't love working out. I don't love moving my body in sort of indoor, regular commercial, industrial fitness environments. No, me either. Um, yeah, it just does. Uh, it's not my vibe. Um, and 
and I live, but I live in a part of the world where it's seasonal. So, you know, half of the year I can just go play outside. I'm, I'm three blocks from Central Park and two blocks from the Hudson River where I live in New York City. So I can go, you know, walk along the water or lose myself. And I mean, there's literally a, a small forest in the middle of Manhattan if nobody's ever been to Central Park. And, um, but then in the winter, months. I'm trying to really figure it out right now. And uh, I've actually started to come back to my, my asana practice, uh, my yoga practice. And um, what's interesting is the trigger that brought me back. I was just recently out at, um, at an event that, uh, you know, like good friends of both of ours, um, you know, like the folks over at Mind Body Green were running their revitalized retreat. And, um, and the Manduka, which is a yoga mat company that makes these really cool, super grippy natural rubber mats, was giving away um, mats. I was like, all right, I'll grab one. And I took it home with me and I just started to lay it out in the morning and I meditate every morning. And what I started to do is I just kind of lay the mat out next to where I meditate the night before. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to commit to a practice, but what I'm going to commit to is when I'm done with my morning meditation. I'm going to take three steps over, come to the front of the mat, you know, stand into dasana and mountain pose, settle into my breath, and then just do three really gentle sun salutations and see where it takes me and see how my body is responding to it. And so it's interesting because I'm now, you know, so my minimum commitment is, is you know, it's almost impossible for me to say, okay, I can't do that or that's going to hurt me or um, there's no way for me to argue intelligently that that's not a viable thing for me to do for three minutes after, you know, I sit. And what I find is that it just starts to get me into a little bit of a movement where now I'm starting to play a little bit. And my sense is that over the, over the next couple of months, I'm probably going to start to rebuild um, some different sequences and a new practice around just the way my body is telling me I need to move. And, um, I think it'd be kind of cool if I came back to my physical practice. I don't, it's, it's so early that I don't know if that's going to happen at the same time. I'm probably going to start swimming and exploring some other stuff. Um, but, um, I think it would be kind of cool if after all these years I came full circle with that and found a way to bring that back and into my daily rituals. I love that. And I think it's really important that you tune in and you pivot, you know, if your body, we go through cycles, we're not going to always feel like you're doing a certain type of movement. So that's really beautiful and well done for honoring your body. It's really important. Yeah. And trust me, that doesn't come easily. By the way, I spent a lot of years just crashing through and not listening. <laughs> so mm. I, I have a twice reconstructed shoulder and, and knees that have been rehabbed many times. So, Wow. Okay. Yeah. Listen to your body. It's super important. Yeah. So let's pretend for a moment that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the curriculum, in every single high school around the world. Now, besides your own books, because <laughs> that's a given, they're amazing. So one book that you could put in the curriculum that'll go into every single high school, what book would you choose? Uh, hands down, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, yeah. That book changed me. Um you know, and, and if people haven't read it, it's the story of a of a, a doctor who ended up in uh, concentration camps in World War II, and how how he not just survived physically, but the shifts that he made in understanding um, how he needed to look at what he was there to do, and find and and basically use suffering as a source for meaning in his life. And he went on to then um, found the field of logotherapy, which is a type of therapy. Um, and, but it really, it reconnects you with the fact that, um, especially these days, we seem to be all on a maniacal quest for happiness. And he kind of makes you touch back down into the realization that, you know what, um, happiness is this fleeting state. It's a snapshot. Um, and it's awesome when it's here, but trying to hold on to it and make it stay is a bit futile. Where meaning, you know, am I, am I living a meaningful life? Am I experiencing meaning? That can last. And in fact, meaning you, you can, it's possible to turn pain and to turn suffering into sources of meaning and, and in doing so, allow you to find a way to, um, to endure them in, 
in a way that's really powerful because at some point in our lives, we are all going to suffer. It's, you know, it is what it is. And if you can, if you can find a way to find meaning in whatever your struggle is, it is, it's transformative. So that book was so really powerful for me. And I think I would love to see that conversation happen at a much younger age. I think that should be required reading at a, at a, you know, on a high school level. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And we'll put um, the link to the book in the show notes so everyone can go and get it. Now, uh, another question I'm curious to ask you is, and you've mentioned, you know, yoga and meditation, but let's talk about your day. And I know there's no typical day in anyone's life. Um, but do you have a morning routine or how does your morning routine look? And how do you prime yourself for the day? And can you run us through uh, a little snapshot from when you wake up to um, when you put your head on the pillow at night and and focus on that morning time and how you prime yourself for the day? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and, and after my morning routine, there is no day which is remotely like another. So it's definitely easier to fo- focus on the morning routine for me. Um, even with my morning routine, there are certain things that are anchors that I've done every day for years, and there are certain things that I'm constantly experimenting with. So my morning routine actually starts the night before, interestingly enough. Um, and because what I do is um, I will set up my coffee maker <laughs> the night before. I'm interested so to know, the- Are you? I'm interested just talking about coffee. Do you do bulletproof coffee? I did for a long time. Um, I did Bulletproof Coffee and then something just wasn't feeling right about it to me. And then I shifted and I actually found um, there's a powdered form of MCT oil that you can get um, that where actually um, you don't need to do any blending. You can make a cup of coffee. You can take a scoop of powdered MCT oil and then stir it up and it just becomes like this really, it dissolves immediately and becomes super creamy. You don't have that sort of thick layer of viscous oily stuff on top. And so what I would, what I eventually changed to was coffee, powdered MCT oil, and then, um, hydrolyzed collagen. So that, which is great for your joints and your connective tissue and in it, which has no flavor, it's completely flavorless. So it's just like a creamy cup of coffee and you don't have to do the blending and there's no butter in it. And there's not that sort of oil slick that sometimes happens on top. And I was doing that until pretty recently, actually. And then, um, and then really just in the last week, I'm trying to, to pull myself off of coffee and I, I made the switch to green tea in the morning. That said, my routine still starts in the evening because for years I've made coffee for my wife and I. And just because I'm not drinking it right now, it doesn't mean that I should stop um, making it for her in the morning. So I still fill the coffee maker and, um, and get the beans ready to go um, so that first thing in the morning I have a little burr grinder and I hit a button and it now grinds the exact amount of beans for one cup instead of two. So I wake up in the morning. I'm pretty not, not social at all, but I'm awake. I don't wake up with an alarm clock. I wake up with an alarm clock very early, earlier than everyone else in the family. I wander out to the kitchen. I grind the beans. I put them in the coffee thing. I hit go. And then I go and I sit and I do a mindfulness practice for 25 minutes. And, um, it's not guided. It's just, I've been doing it for long enough. So I'm very comfortable just really sort of settling into my breath and, and allowing whatever comes to me to sort of acknowledge it and then let it go. Some days are better than others. Some days I'm maniacally spinning in my head and some days, you know, I, I reach a much more peaceful place and, and I've learned through different teachers over the years that that's fine. That's, that's still the practice and it will probably always be that way. And now, as I mentioned, what I said, you know, I, I'll take a couple steps over to my yoga mat and step to the front and do my sort of minimum commitment of, of Surya Namaskar A. And often that leads to a little bit more and we'll see how that goes. And then um, I really try not to use any technology before this with the one exception of the fact that for when I meditate, I use an, a timer for an app so that it lets me know where I am. Um, then... After that, on some days I'll sit there and I'll do a little snapshot of my buckets and I'll kind of say, okay, um, really quick, like intuitive, five second thing. How full does my vitality bucket feel today? How full does my connection bucket feel? How full does my contribution bucket feel? And if there's one that feels like it's noticeably low, 
I'll commit to doing something significant that day that's focused on really um, elevating that. And, um, and then I'll, I'll kind of really focus in on, okay, what's the most important thing that I need to do today? And, um, and try and do that first. Um, that said, what I'll very often do after that is I'll make my green tea and then I'll come back and sit and just to kind of get it out of my head, I'll really quickly process through email and social. Um, but generally not going deep into it unless there's something that's truly urgent or emergent that I have to respond to. But the truth is it there rarely is. I just kind of want to get it out of my head so it's not lingering there. Um, and then I've experimented with different things from there. Sometimes some mornings I would read. Um, there was a time where I was reading two or three books a week just because I would read for an hour or two every morning. And also part of my job is to read, you know, I interview a lot of authors. So, and, and I actually like to read their books before I talk to them. Um, some days I'll go out and I'll just go walking, you know, in the trees in Central Park. So after that, I keep playing with all sorts of different things to kind of figure out what works for me. And then I move into any wide variety of stuff. But as a general rule, the first half of my day, my work day then is about creation. And the, the afternoon is about, um, managing and conversation and consumption. So that those are sort of the, the really big blocks. And then in the evening, you know, I also, I'm married, I have a 15 year old daughter. So, um, you know, actually when my daughter wakes up and, you know, we'll usually try and spend a couple of minutes together in the morning before she goes to school and then kind of hang out a bit in the afternoon and in the evening, just with a, a little family stuff. Mm, that sounds beautiful. Really, really nice. So, uh, I would love to hear now three things that you're most recently grateful for. Um, I am a massive advocate for gratitude and I know you are too. And the reason being is because it honestly has changed my life. I, mm. it really, it really has changed my life. And my husband and I practice, we, I mean, we have a little gratitude ritual every day. We actually have a few different ones. Um, so I'm constantly saying what I'm grateful for. I'm writing it down. I'll find myself even driving my car, just saying, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I realize that I'm a much nicer and a much happier person when I practice gratitude. And it's very easy when you've first starting a gratitude practice to kind of just rattle off. I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful for my husband. I'm grateful for my home, you know, and what we have noticed is that we kind of slipped into a little bit of that, um, rattling off. And so my husband and I have, have really taken time to, to try and not mention things that we've already mentioned. So to find newer, deeper, yes. recent things. So of course, we're always going to be grateful for each other. You know, let's find something deeper. Let's go really deep. So I'm curious to know, you know, what are three things that you're deeply, most recently grateful for in your life? Mm. Um, I, I mean, family just comes to me immediately, but let me, let me go a layer deeper than that, because like you said, that's kind of like, that's an easy out. Um, I'm grateful to um, be married to a woman who embraces me as I am and accepts me and welcomes me without needing to change me. Um, You're making me emotional. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've got tears in my eyes. That's so beautiful. Um, it's, it's just true. It's, it's mm. an amazing blessing. Um, mm. I'm grateful to have a daughter who's a, a kind soul. Um, who still loves to steal hugs when nobody's looking. Um, I'm grateful to be able to do work that hopefully in some way makes a difference in other people's lives. They're beautiful. Really, really beautiful. And just to wrap up, I have three more quick little questions. This has been so amazing and an hour is never long enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, you and I could chat for half a day and I feel like we've just scratched the surface. So mm -hmm. maybe we'll have to have you on another time. Um, but in your opinion, what is one of the most important things that you can do for your health? Sleep. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's the most ignored thing because people struggle with it the most and feel they had the least amount of control over it. And, 
and to a certain extent, rightly so, but also we probably do have more control over it than we think we have. And a lot of it has to do with understanding the proper ritual. So I think really focusing on sleep, it's, it's the foundation, the unlock key for so much um, of the other elements of health. I totally agree. And um, I highlighted, I mean, I have a really, I sleep really well. I sleep eight hours. I've got, you know, I wear an eye mask. I've got earplugs. I've blacked out my room. Like I'm a good sleeper and Mm. I love my sleep, but my mom has never really slept and she's got, you know, a lot of emotional stuff that she's, she's suppressed. And I highlighted so many parts in your book on that sleep section. And I'm going to give it to her, uh, as soon as, um, you know, after this interview, I wanted to keep it so I could have it for our interview, but, uh, I'm going to give it to her and just, you know, subtly inspire her with your little sleep tips. You know, I've been saying them for years, but it's always nice when it comes from someone else. So yeah, no, I totally get it. <laughs> especially yeah, I kind of, I kind of went to town on that part of the book. Cause I, I wanted to give a little bit more information. So, cause I know if I left it for people to try and source it elsewhere, they probably wouldn't. Exactly. And you, I totally agree. Sleep is so important. And one of the best things that you can do for your health, my husband is, a little bit of a biohacker, you know, just in his, that's something that he loves doing in his, for a hobby in his, you know, spare time. Um, but he, you know, he has these Delta sleepers and he has all these sorts of things, um, mm. that he really, you know, loves and embraces to really hack the, the most out of his sleep and get the best out of it. So, um, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, the, Next question I wanted to ask you is what is one of the most important things you could do for your wealth? And when I say wealth, I'm talking, you know, your career or your finances. What is one of the most important things you could do in that area? Mm, this, this may not be as immediately obvious, but um, it's what I call becoming a beacon. Um, go deep into yourself and figure out what sparks you, what lights you up, what are your strengths? And figure out how to do work that in some way aligns with those and allows you to fully engage with them. Because when you do that, you light up. And when you light up, other people respond to you. They light up and they want to participate in whatever you're doing. And when that happens, wealth in almost any way that you might define it um, comes with far greater ease. Wow. And finally, the last question I wanted to ask you is what is one of the most important things that you can do for love, for your relationships, for self-love, any of those areas? Mm, Don't hide. Oh, Um, yeah. We spend, yeah, we spend so much time hiding who we really are because we're terrified of being judged. I think there's nothing more, there's nothing that will open you and open those around you to love than, um, stepping out of the shadows, being vulnerable. Um, and if doing so ends up that the people that you want most to be loved by end up stepping away better that, you know, now. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. They're amazing little nuggets of wisdom. Thank you so much. I have learned so much in this interview and I'm so grateful for you sharing your wisdom. Um, you've really inspired me along my journey and connecting with you when we first connected was really beautiful. You really touched my heart and I came home and told my husband, he's such a beautiful man. Like I wish he lived in Sydney so we could have dinner parties with him. He's so beautiful. So I just want to acknowledge you for being such a beautiful beacon and human being and for the work that you do in the world. You are inspiring so many people and you're just being your beautiful self and your book is gorgeous. And I want to encourage everyone to go out and grab a copy, How to Live a Good Life. I'll put all of the um, information in the show notes. Um, but I'm so grateful, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Everything that we've spoken about will be mentioned in the show notes. So I'll leave all the information there, but thank you again. If you want to leave a five-star review so we can help spread Jonathan's message and spread more love into the world, please do. Yeah. Thank you so much for the invitation and for the conversation. And I just want to acknowledge you as well, um, for the work that you're doing and the grace you bring to it. It's, it's wonderful. So It's been a pleasure. Thank you again. I'm so honored and grateful to have you here with us today. 
What a beautiful man he is. Holy moly. I'm still feeling so inspired after that conversation. One of my favorite things that really, really inspired me was how he listened to his body and how he tuned in and, you know, video was no longer feeling true for him. And he really honored that. And even though it was doing well, and even though there was nothing wrong with it, he really had to honor that. And there's been times in my life where I've started ventures or projects and down the track, they no longer felt true for me. And it brought up a lot of fear, but every time I've followed that, it's always been the right decision. So that really inspired me to tap into that and to really listen to my intuition even more. Don't forget to tell me on Twitter. If you have anyone that you would like me to interview, please let me know on Twitter. My handle is at Mel underscore Ambrosini because my full name doesn't fit and use the hashtag the Melissa Ambrosini show so that I can find it. Anyone you want me to interview, please let me know. Don't Don't forget to check out the show notes. Um, Just head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash one and all the show notes will be there so that any books that we mentioned, you can check them out. And before I go, I just want to say thank you so much for being here and for wanting to be the best version of yourself and for showing up for you today. You seriously rock. Now, if there is someone in your life that you think could really benefit from this episode, whilst you're feeling super inspired, please hit the share button and send them this episode right now. Don't forget to leave me a five-star review so we can spread the love and share this with your friends now. And why I'm asking you to do it now is because simply you are feeling inspired and you get what you give. So the more you give, the more you get. So share it out now. And until next time, don't forget strong is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash podcast to listen to all my other podcasts. Sending you so much love and see you soon.